Welcome, welcome. You're listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm a registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And we have a really special guest. His name is Brian. He is a registered massage therapist, longtime registered massage therapist. And he also has a book that we'd like to talk to him about today. We jumped into the truck, drove across the city. We are in St. Catharines right now, hanging out in a really cool kitchen, man. I, I, I dig this place. I dig it a lot. Uh, Amanda's sitting around with us as well. Amanda, why don't you do your thing? Hey, everyone. It's Amanda, registered massage therapist in Toronto. And as Mark said, we're actually not in Toronto right now. We're about an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes southwest of Toronto in St. Catharines, sitting with Brian Fulton, who is a registered massage therapist and the author of a book that's called The Placebo Effect in Manual Therapy, Improving Clinical Outcomes in Your Practice. And I know Mark and I have kind of sort of touched on the placebo effect in some episodes, so we thought this would be a good guest to have on to uh, school us a little bit, because you're the expert, not us. (laughs) Thanks for having us over at your place today, Brian. Thanks for asking me to speak. Nice to have you here. Right on. So why don't we jump into a little bit of background? Uh, How long have you been an RMT for? 20 years. I got uh, certified in 99. Where'd you go to school? Uh, It was called Alexandrian Institute. It was right downtown uh, Hamilton. Uh, corner Main and James. School's not there any longer, but that's how I. That's where I got all my schooling. What were you doing before massage therapy? I had 20 years in the trades. Actually, I worked as, as a sheet metal worker in a family business. So it was a small, like seven-person operation, and I did that up until I was 40. And at 40, I started making some changes in my life, and career ended up being one of those things. So it was actually 42 when I went back to school for massage therapy. Did you find school easy or difficult being 42? Uh, I didn't know what to expect. I was pretty apprehensive. I was concerned about my 42-year-old brain, whether or not I was going to be able to absorb things. And uh, I always had a good mind for logic and science, but I was not good at memory work. And I was concerned about all the memory work ahead. But I was so incredibly focused when I went back to school um, as an adult who was, you know, taking time out of his adult career life at that point. Um, that I just ate up the information. I loved it. I was just like, because I was finding out what was going on in my own body as well as what's going on in everybody else's body. So not only did I find the schooling very interesting and fascinating, but I found myself as I was going through my schooling, really looking forward to the end of schooling when I could read what I wanted to read and have the time to explore the other things. And this is one of these examples here Mm -hmm. um, with my book where you say you you go off on all these other avenues and find lots of other things that are, that are, you aren't schooled in, but are actually quite very much attached to massage therapy. What made you decide massage therapy from the family sheet metal business to body work? That's a (laughs) big 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 jump. jump. (laughs) It sounds like a big jump. Um, I mean, I've always worked with my hands. I was a cabinet maker in my very early twenties and then I was a sheet metal worker. Um, and in some ways with massage therapy, all the tools fall away. It's still your hands. Um, in my 40s, I was very interested in uh, trying to scale back my life to more minimalist sort of things. And massage therapy is your head, your heart, and your hands. That's how I view it. Um, your head is you know, your, your knowledge base. Your heart is your, your intuition and your empathy. And then, of course, your hands. And, and the other thing about massage therapy, for me, as, as an adult, it was like a return to being a child because it's almost like Play-Doh and all the things that we did playing in mud with when we were kids. That's to me, is a lot of what 
massage therapy is about the, the tactile component of it. So a lot appealed to me about it. But the purity, I think, really appealed to me. At what point in your career as a massage therapist do you decide, I'm going to write a book? Where do the interests come in in the placebo effect? It's got a super academic side to it, which, again, it seems a little different from, you know, the trade stuff before. So like, give us an idea of how you how this even came about. Um, when I first got out of school, I got an opportunity to write a health uh, column for a local magazine, a distribution of maybe 30,000. It was just distributed in, in the Niagara area. And that was kind of fun because I got to every month I got to write on a health topic. So I got really kind of interested in writing. Um, and my editor was a great guy who said, like, every month, like, whatever you want to write about, write about it. So I didn't even have to run anything past him. I was just, okay, here's this month's submission. You know, I listened to something on CBC once on the placebo effect. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And I did a little bit of, you know, a bit of writing and research. And uh, so I did a, an article on that. And then I took a course with Stuart Taws called... Um, well, British sports therapy, but basically what uh, what it is, is he was the basically the grandfather of ART. It's really simple work where you start with muscle in a shortened position and you lengthen it. Um, and it's Michael Leahy took a course from him and later on developed ART and realized, hey, this is a real moneymaker and turned it into a mo- business model. But Stuart Taws uh, teaches something that's pretty general um, and... The first two hours that we, I spent in that uh, seminar, which was a two-day, two or three-day seminar, all he talked about was you and your client. And I was just bowled away, you know, like this is something that's largely grounded in science, but he's spending the first two hours talking about everything that's going on between you and your client. And he never used the word placebo effect at all, but having just written that article, I'm thinking, okay, all this, these wheels are mm-hmm. turning and I'm thinking, oh yeah, this, this stuff's all really, really important. And uh, so I got quite enthused after him. And then after a while, I realized, okay, I I think I'd like to write something on this. And I didn't know if it'd ever be published, but it was much larger than an article. And it just kept expanding and expanding and expanding. And it it became a book. And I was very, very lucky. The first uh, person I asked to write a forward for me was Leon Chetow, who was one of my heroes. He said, I'd be glad to. The first publisher I approached, which was Handspring Publishing, I said, yeah, we're interested. I mean, I had to go through all the submission process and all the steps. But, um, you know, it went, I, I, I could not have been luckier. Like everything just kind of fell into place. There seemed to be a place, a room in the marketplace for it. And when I started writing this 10 years ago, it maybe seemed uh, a little bit, up, so it was more, a little more than 10 years ago, but when it seemed a little bit obscure at that time. But by the time the book's been published and it's out now, everybody's talking about the biopsychosocial model of medicine. And this is the, this is the P and the S. This is mm-hmm. the psycho and the social. This kind of did come out model. at the right time. Because yeah. you're right, everybody's talking about that now. Yeah. What was, from sort of start to finish, how long was this process? Like, how long was your research process? How long was the writing process? The book for me was about seven years. Seven years, um, okay. And writing a book is different for everyone. But I can tell you, for me... Uh, it was like a giant jigsaw puzzle. I had an idea pretty much as, uh, first off, I'll tell you what sort of started. I had a three-week holiday booked in Mexico, and I had never done major holidays before. And I thought, what am I going to do with myself for three weeks? So I brought about seven books down with me that uh, that I had bought and that and had, was reading. I had already read about the placebo effect. And I just started assembling my book in my mind and writing the rough draft out. Um, and that I didn't have internet or anything at that point, but 
it was good enough for me to get the things drawn out um, and get a rough draft and get an idea of how the book was going to develop. The challenge is you come back and you get back into your work life and you get busy and mm-hmm. the uh, assembling a giant jigsaw puzzle requires a lot of mental concentration. So you need a lot of quiet and, and time. So it became my Mexico project. Every year I go to Mexico for a month and I'd work on my book again. So, um, you know, between relaxing and enjoying my holiday, I would also be writing the books and, and, and it basically took a, you know, say close to seven years for that to come to completion. And then once I submitted it to my publisher, it was another full year before it actually got into, into hard print. I think that can happen a lot quicker these days with eBooks, but uh, there's just a lot of back and forth and there was errors and, you know, whatever. So it, it, it takes time. Yeah, so it was 2015 by the time it finally hit the hit the shelves. Well, like you said, you also had your regular life and career in that seven years, and you practice here? Yes. Out of yeah. your home? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I have uh, worked in the spa sector as well, too, for a period of time, but in 2013, I drew that to a close. So um, my practice, I put in a, this, this room you're sitting in here is an addition, and the addition has my clinic down below, separate entrance, separate everything. So it's great. It's attached to my house, but uh, but it's separate from my house. Awesome. So tell us about this book. I want to know um, who buys it and how has it been received so far? That's a good question. And, you know, I can't honestly say I've got a lot of feedback. Uh, uh, and I don't know what it's like for you, for example, doing podcasts. Like you're doing things and then you're not sure, you know, how feedbacks. And I can't say that I monitor it terribly well. Um, I do get to see some royalty checks once a year. Um, so that gives me an indication of sales. Uh, it did a few years ago, got translated into Korean, which I was really excited that happened. Um, so it's nice to see something get, getting translated into mm-hmm. another language. And I've had, you know, through Facebook, people who've contacted me and have since done interviews um, and I've been involved with who've read the book and were impressed with it. That's always great. Um I recall the book had only been out six months or so, and a friend of mine mentioned that it was in the uh, University of Toronto Library and, and uh, uh, Medical Library, and I thought, well, that's that's fantastic. Um, and the fellow who interviewed me last week, Nathan Cashin, um, he had encountered it once again in the library. He was he's a chiropractor, and in in their library, he had encountered it, and that's how he ended up buying it. So. Uh, you know, it's, I can't honestly say sales have been like super brisk, but mm-hmm. you know, they're steady and they keep happening and uh, I keep talking and being interviewed and I, I've done a bunch of webinars. Um, I've got a course, it's out of a company eHealth um, that's happening in Britain um, and I've done some conferences. I've got a conference I'm speaking at in a few months. So the words always kind of get out there and circulating a little bit. Right on, right on. Okay, for so anyone who hasn't read the book, I haven't read your book yet. Yep. I've read like publisher's notes and so yep. I have an idea of what the book is about. Yep. How would you best describe to somebody who has no idea what is the placebo effect? What is the placebo effect? Um, first off, let me step back and say that the best information out there and the research all indicates that the placebo effect is coming into play in every medical encounter. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter whether you're visiting your family doctor, your chiropractor, or if someone's doing Reiki on you, there's almost always a placebo effect mm-hmm. happening. And what's interesting is that the more powerful the symbol is, the more powerful the effect seems to be. So surgery is, sham surgery, we know, is probably one of the most powerful placebos out there. Right. So it's first off, it's coming into play in every medical encounter. And what's going on? Honestly, we don't know. But what we think is going on is there's basically a thought process. There's there's an, people have an, a, a thought, and that thought triggers a neural cascade. And uh, these neural cascades uh, seem to affect any, anything from our, our inflammatory response 
Um, they affect our endocrine system. They obviously affect immediate neural, neuroendocrine, neural and neuroendocrine. So there's all sorts of systems that seem to get affected. And, and if the response is more of an anxious and anxiety or fear response, we would call that a nocebo effect. It tends to have a negative effect. Right. Um, but if it, I'm speaking in very broad terms, if it has more calming and relaxing effect, then it can have positive effects. Um, and to the point where it's bizarre, but you can actually damp down, inf- you know, inflammatory response just by having a belief process that's coming into mm-hmm. play. In a, um, so basically what you have is a thought pattern. You have a uh, biological path, neurobiological pathway, and then you have what is either would be a subjective or objective response to that. These objective responses are, are measurable and have been measured in a number of uh, research studies, and subjective things are like, I feel better. Right. I, I mean, to make it even more simple, I can relate it to like anecdotal evidence or even my own experiences. I know one of the, the bullet points in the notes about the book was part of the placebo effect is like expectations and outcomes. Just simple examples. One, when you're not feeling so well, you go to the doctor. The minute you have a diagnosis, it like sets your mind at ease, knowing what has been going on, and somehow you feel better. Just from getting a diagnosis, somehow you feel better. Because again, you know, doctors today seem to say everything is because of stress. So if you're decreasing stress, automatically you're you're decreasing hormonal output and you're you're making yourself feel better just from something as simple as a diagnosis. Yep. In my own personal experience, my first uh, labor, I did hypnobirthing. Okay. And was the level of pain any different for me? Probably not. But that experience I felt was much more manageable and somehow I was able to get through the whole labor without horrible amounts of pain. Second time, didn't use my hypnobirthing techniques and I will tell you it was much more painful. Wow, yeah. (laughs) Much more painful. And I know one research study that sort of parallels that, they had one study where they did quick train doulas and these were women that had no experience whatsoever in birthing and whatnot. They were just, you know, gave a quick course, um, um, like a one-hour thing. We want you to help these women through the Mm -hmm. birth. And when they compared the women who had the doula-assisted birth with the women who had not had doula-assisted birth, they saw all sorts of differences in outcomes. And they were all positive outcomes that came from simply having someone else there with them. Right. So, um, and you're right. I mean, there's so, so many. Um, in my um, in my book and in my, uh, in my speaking engagements, I hit about 30 different points that we know all seem to be triggers that come into play. When you talk about your medical encounter thing, like, first off, you're being listened to. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. You know? So the listening is is a very, very important component. But the speaking component as well, too. Once you speak about something, uh, you put something into a narrative format, you start creating a story, and the story, all stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. So when you're forced to, to describe something, you actually create order in your own mind instead of it being a little bit more chaotic. Okay, it started with this, this happened, that happened, and that happened. Um, there's um, the explanation that can come into play where if the... Uh, medical professional you see says, okay, it is A, B, C, and D. Once it's explained to you, the, mm-hmm. that comes into play as well too. So there's there's all these little components that all seem to make up, the, from what I can see, are, are triggers for the placebo effect. What are some of the most important things, specifically for manual therapists? Like you yeah. said, this is for any medical encounter, but for manual therapy, what do you think comes into play when we're talking about the placebo effect? There are a whole host of things. Um, one of the things which is not really a point but it is it, it needs to be underscored. And I usually sort of speak about this first, and that is that without trust, 
you do not have a placebo effect. I mean, a placebo effect is largely about you being able to have trust either in, a, in an individual or, or a collective so that you can sort of put your, drop your own defenses and get some benefit from that. So anything that you do that undermines trust with your client is going to work against this effect. And anything that you do that builds trust is going to help to support it. Mm-hmm. Um, expectations are something you talked about. Um, so I would say the placebo effect in terms of looking what the triggers are. Traditionally, we would say there's three major triggers. And that one is expectation. What is, what's your client expecting? Um, number two is conditioning, whether they've had positive conditioning or negative conditioning. Right. We've all had that where someone comes into our clinic and thank goodness they've had positive effects with massage therapy before and you You've already, they're already primed for you, right? They right. already know, they already believe in massage therapy. They get on your table and they're already, you know, like the dogs, they're salivating. They're, 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 they're ready to go. So conditioning is, is another major trigger. Um, and then the third major trigger I would say is, is meaning and meaning, unfortunately, is a really big word. And I break that up into a whole host of other topics. So what does this experience mean to me? So we can get into their belief system. Um, if they're, if you can, and belief systems are alterable. We, we all don't realize that, but they're quite malleable. So we can change people's belief systems. Um, hope is an issue. Um, and that sort of falls under expectation. Um, desire, um, to what, degree do they desire to get better mm-hmm. um, and then motivation desire and motivation two slightly different things desire is more internal in terms of what they want a motivation is more like the carrot that you can put out in front of someone so that they might right. uh, ch- uh, chase after that carrot um, listening we've talked about listening is extremely important um, and listening as a therapist is not a passive process. It's an active process. So mm-hmm. when they are speaking to you, you need to be echoing back. Um, you need to be questioning them on things. So listening is extremely important and is not a passive process. Care and concern, as you might guess, comes into play in a big way mm-hmm. too. And that's simply just being there for someone. That in itself is, is another trigger for this uh, phenomenon. Uh, control comes into uh, play, um, specifically like locus of control. Uh, if you look at the medical world 20 years ago, it was sort of the doctor knows best, you know, here's what I want you to do. Right. Um, and things are shifting now where we realize we need to put the locus of control on the client. Um, and there's several reasons for that. Is And, and the bottom line is they're the ones who are going to get the benefit. They're the ones who need to do the work. Um, and as a therapist, you know, if you're doing all the work, it's tiring. So you want to shift the locus of control of decision making and motivation onto them. So that's another component of this as well, too. Um, their own sense of control comes into play as well, too, whether they feel like they're in control of their situation and if they feel like they're not in control for them to be able to have faith in you as a therapist or their belief in the universe or in a God. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can only control so much of your own health and your own personal situation. And at some point you have to be able to give control up to something else. So if once again, if they can give some of that control up to you and sort of say that I can help you with that, that comes into play as well too. And that goes along with the trust. If they exactly. trust you, they're more willing to give up some of that control. Yeah. And one of the criticisms I've heard after I've, you know, I've done presentations on this is, is people will say, you know, well, you know what you're saying, it, it, a lot of these things work counter to one another. I said, it's true. 
is because humans are complicated. It's not like some of these concepts, they will sort of work with the others, but others work against this control thing, the shift of locus of control to them, and then, but also you having some degree of control. Yeah, it is complicated, but you also have to be able to read your client. There's no two people that we treat are the same. So you have to learn to adapt just everything to do with the placebo effect, just like everything else that we do. You have to adapt it to each client. You can't just pull up a formula and say, okay, A, B, C, D, E. That's not I think the most successful therapists that I have encountered are not necessarily the ones with the best technical skills, but the ones with the ability to figure out a way to communicate with different people because people are going to communicate with you differently. And if you're able to understand a person and understand what their needs are, what their expectations are, what they're expecting from you, the sessions are going to go much smoother. Absolutely. And another component of the placebo effect is, you know, to what degree we explain things to our client. So you don't want to get into a detailed explanation to someone who has no interest. If someone who thinks like energy-wise, you speak to them energy-wise. Right. If someone's an engineer, you speak to them like an engineer. Um, so it's meeting people where they are. So this exactly. Is a, this is another component of, of, of is just explaining so that they understand what's going on with them. Anxiety is another component. So anything that we can do to help to reduce their anxiety is will help uh, with the uh, placebo effect. We've talked about explanation. Um, inner narrative. Every one of us carries a story around of our life and we're either the hero in that story or we're sort of somewhere in the middle or we're a victim. And if your client is constantly a victim in their own story, we are not psychotherapists, but we can give positive feedback and maybe we can help them to change their story. If they're, mm-hmm. if, if they're having a hard enough time, maybe in some cases, this is one of these areas where we might want to refer to someone else. But if someone is is constantly a victim in their own story, we can help them in, in subtle ways to try and rewrite that story and look at things in a different way. Mm-hmm. So that narrative is, is another component. Um, touch is, is another thing that helps them manifest the placebo effect, but we all working in manual therapy, there's little that we have to talk about that other than to say that touch needs to be safe. Mm-hmm. Certainty is another thing that is a trigger. So if your client is sort of sitting on the fence, and like, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they're not going to do their remedial exercises. They're not as apt to stick to uh, um, the things that we know are going to help them. So if we can move them off the fence one way or another so that they're not caught in that cognitive dissonance, that helps with mm-hmm. the placebo effect as well too. Uh, time is another component. So in our profession, it's almost not an issue at all. It looks like the magic number is about between 12 and 15 minutes. So for persons like chiropractors who are seeing people for shorter periods of times, doctors, uh, placebo effect, th- that's more important. But for us, usually um, we have lots of time. Um, branding is another thing. So if you happen to be trained in any specific thing which is hot, you know, whether, as I say, something like ART or whatever it might be, um, people have faith in these in these brands right. because the collective uh, aspect newness if you've just been on a course and it's you've just taken oh i got this new technique people are always excited about that new drugs work way better than old drugs right um and it's the same with manual therapy um ritual is sounds like a, a funny word to talk about and we're not talking about you know candles and uh you know and chants but we're talking about the fact that when you just coming in when people shake your hand you give them a glass of water they see the uh diploma on your wall they see the charts um it might be the music it might be a bunch of things but anything that sort of them sort of says i know what this guy i know what he or she's doing right um and i have faith in them then that ritual comes into play as well in manifesting and like you talk about ritual like um and theater 
This is why something like surgery has such a powerful effect. There's an immense amount of ritual and theater in that right. goes into play when you are getting uh, getting surgery happening. Um, compliance, anything that we can do that helps with the, our clients to comply more so with remedial exercises and their own therapy is going to help to manifest the effect. Um, and then um, the environment also comes into play. Everything we've talked about, some of those ritual components, but uh, everything to do with your uh, your clinic, um, the more professional it is, the more medicalized it is, generally speaking, the more effect we're going to tend to see. And then the last aspect of the placebo effect is to realize that as a therapist, you are the placebo. You're a walking placebo. Mm-hmm. Um, and once again, the larger the symbol, the more powerful the symbol, the more powerful the effect. So doctors and their white coats have a much more powerful placebo effect than you and I are going to have. But by the same token, just realize that the more professionally you dress, the more professionally you act, um, the more competent you're perceived as being, and uh, the, the enthusiasm that you project, these are all things that are going to help to manifest a placebo placebo effects so that you are you want to be a more powerful placebo, a more powerful symbol yourself. And then the last aspect, which is a really, really important aspect of the placebo effect, is to realize that you know things that we say can have the opposite effect and they can have triggers which we manifest, which we call the nocebo effect. The last thing we want to, like, even if you don't want to believe in the placebo effect, even if you sort of say, well, this is a bunch of hogwash, at the very least, try not to manifest the nocebo effect. If as a therapist, you can avoid doing that, you're already, like, that's a big, big, big step. Mm-hmm. And I was taught certain things in school, and you might sort of say someone has a slip disc, or it's a lo- all sorts of expressions that I was taught that, okay, this is not an adequate way of describing it to your patient, because A, now we know it's not scientifically correct, but B, it invokes an anxiety reaction. So more than anything, we really want to avoid a nocebo reaction. This is so interesting to me for so many reasons. One, because a lot of the things you're saying um, actually correlate with stuff that I already teach, maybe just under a different name. Uh, We teach business courses. So we teach things about branding and expectations and, you know, making your clients comfortable, what they see on your website and what they see online should match what they see in person. Uh, We talk about in our... in the business course as well, um, beliefs and expectations and attitudes and how all of those are going to affect a person's mindset. So again, the idea that you were saying, being able to change somebody's belief system. When you were talking about sort of the mismatch with the control, I didn't even look at it that way. I didn't think that these things were in combat with each other because I felt like it went along with the trust. Like on one hand, yes, you want to give your client or patient sort of this empowering feeling that they have control over their healthcare, but it's because they're giving you a little bit of control to guide them to where they need to go. And I've always felt in my practice that most of my clients, um, they they have so much trust in me that, yeah, they're going to do what I tell them to do. They're going to do their remedial exercise, but they also seem to mirror what I'm telling them they're going to feel. So it's this, like, it's the placebo effect. So I'm, you know, I'm telling them, this is what we're doing. And, you know, this is what to expect. And, you know, if, tell me how you're feeling in two days. And, you know, we have this whole conversation back and forth. And I'll say to them, you know, my gut feeling is that in four days, you might start to feel some of this coming back. And, you know, this is what we need to do. And they'll come back into the clinic and say, like, you were exactly right. You know, four days from the treatment, this is what I started to feel. Like, it's, 
if you kind of put these expectations in people's minds and you're calming their anxiety because they know what's going to come out of it, it's like everything that I just said is exactly what just happened. And so we do try to teach that in a lot of our courses is that, you know, yes, your technical skills are important. Yes, all of these things you learned in school are, are important. But remember that each person you're dealing with is a person and all of them are going to react differently to the same treatment. So understand the person first. And so, yeah, everything you just said, I feel like, yeah, like I, I've already been doing this and it's really nice to know there's actual science behind everything that I've instinctively been doing with my own patients. And when um, I've had, uh, you know, there's lots of online discussions over this sort of thing and I, you know, and people will sort of say, oh, you know, placebo effect is a wrong way to describe it. And you know what, uh, like it, it, at some point things start to become just semantics in terms of how we're going to describe things. Yeah. Um, and when I do my presentations, I oftentimes have a slide that has the elephant and the blind man and the elephant. And the one guy is saying placebo effect. Another person is saying, um, oh, contextual effects. And the other person is saying, oh, it's nonspecific effects. And the other person is saying, well, it's the psychosocial component. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also interpersonal skills. Like it's all the same thing. Like it's, and, right. and, and in the end, the further I got into this book, the less interested I was in in whether or not something was the placebo effect. I was mostly became interested in anything that was a non-manual component. So right. we're taught uh, in a lot of my schooling is around the manual therapy and it's the manual components and everybody's always interested in courses on you know, a new technique. And that's great, but the science would suggest is at least 50% of what's going on, if not more, is the non-manual components. So anything which is not just hands-on that can elicit a positive response that will improve a therapeutic outcome. These are the things I'm interested in, and I don't care what we call them. I don't care whether yeah. we call them placebo effect. The, the only reason my book got called the placebo effect was I found when I wanted to look into the science and you're doing the research and you're going into the National Institutes of uh, Health's library, there are things called medical subject heading, mesh term. And the, the most powerful mesh term was placebo effect. Right. And as you said, it's just semantics. Either way, when you say placebo effect to most people in our industry, they know what that means. Yeah. Regardless of what you want to call it, you know what that means. It doesn't mean that this effect isn't real. It is yeah. the psychosocial aspect of therapy. It is real, but it's placebo in the sense that maybe some of the improvements we're seeing are nothing to do with our manual skills. So it's, you know, pseudo improvement, but... It's, it's real. It's very real. Absolutely. Do you get any blowback from other manual therapists or proponents of the manual side of what we do and in your book? Um, rephrase that question. I'm not sure that I was understanding. Do you get any negative, negative response about everything that you're suggesting here? Yeah. yeah. Tell us about the... Uh, well, um, the, the most negative response I get is people saying, oh, the placebo effect doesn't exist. And there are there's lots of people adamantly out there sort of saying the placebo effect doesn't exist. Um, and they're saying, and there's a whole host of reasons why that's defendable. But those same people believe in the nocebo effect. Those same people will say, oh, you know, you have to be careful about what you say because you create a, you know, a, a negative effect. So that to me is an untenable position. I don't understand how you can sort of say, well, there's no placebo effect. They once again play with semantics and they'll say, oh, it's contextual effects and it's this and it's that. It's like, well, you're just calling it a different word. Mm-hmm. Right. Because if you believe that that if you say something as a therapist, that you can create negative consequences, uh, therapeutic outcomes in your clients, 
by what you say, well, how is it that you think that it couldn't go the other way? Because that's, I mean, um, one of the things which I have in uh, my most recent article, which you can't show on, on your podcast, is, and I basically have a, the, the needle scale, and it's going left to right, and it, and it just basically, you know, on the left side, you've got the red, and on the right side, you've got the green, and everything that we say is on a spectrum. So the spectrum on the negative side is nocebo, on the positive side is placebo. Um, the mind has the ability as far as we know, neurobiologically, to, to modulate um, what's going on in your body. And if it, and if it down-regulates, you can get a nocebo effect. If it up-regulates, you get a placebo effect. Um, but I'm at the point of, like, I just don't have any desire to defend things any longer. It's like, you know, this is it. You guys, there's lots of science here. And if you want to fight over what we're going to call it, go right ahead. Because mm-hmm. I'm not attached to placebo effect as a word. It's like, <laughs> if you want to use contextual effects, that's great. That's like whatever works. Either way, the point is that manual therapy goes beyond the manual component. Exactly. And that's the most important thing. I don't thing. think yeah. many people dispute that. So at this point, as you said, the disputes, the negative feedback is all about the semantics. Yeah. Because I don't think anybody is disputing the biopsychosocial approach. I think most therapists are pretty on board with that now. And again, without the science, just anecdotally, you know that when you have a client who's very comfortable with you and can just, even, okay, let's take relaxation. If somebody doesn't feel comfortable with you and you're trying to work on them on your table and they're tense and they're holding their breath, and you're not getting anywhere with them anyway. So just by getting to that point of having them trust you and be comfortable with you, you can get some manual therapy done. Yep. Otherwise you've you've got a pile of bricks on your table and you're not getting anywhere. Yep. And once again, you know, like that that trust thing keeps coming back, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we know that. I mean, and uh, I've had people, I'm sure you've had people ask you too, like, like you have people come into your home and they take their clothes off, you know? So yeah, so yeah obviously trust is critical in Huge. what we do, you know. And, and you're a male therapist. Yeah. This, this theme keeps coming up on the podcast that male therapists already have sort of a roadblock there because yep. there's going to be females who don't feel comfortable with yep. that. Yep. There's going to be males who don't feel comfortable yep. with another another male touch. So if you can get to a point where, yeah, people, st- strangers essentially are coming into your house and saying, sure, I'll get undressed in the room in your basement. Yep. You're doing something really yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So another theme that we've had quite frequently on our podcast is there seems to be this like dichotomy, I don't know, in massage therapy, maybe it's not just two and there's a whole bunch of different sides, but it seems that there's these really hardcore evidence-based science people, evidence-based practice people. And then there are people who, you know, believe in energy and energy work. So, you know, people who maybe practice Reiki or reflexology, um, where do you think you fit in there or do you fit in there? Oh, uh, first off, I'm not someone who's ever planted a flag and never will. I mean, I'm 65 now. And uh, if I haven't planted a flag yet, I'm never going to plant a flag. So, um, but I can tell you this, as when I started as a massage therapist, um, I've always been a, a, and if you look at how my book is written, it's a practice, especially the second half. The first half is all theory. The second half is practice. When the rubber hits the road, what do you do? And I give people, here's a concept. This is how you can use, here's the evidence that supports this concept. And here's practical ways of how you can uh, implement this concept. So it's practical, practical, practical. So I'm a practically minded person. I don't doubt for a second that energy 
exists and a lot of the things that that science has not been able to nail down i'm quite certain that these things exist but i don't practice them in my practice because mm-hmm. i don't i'm a guy uh you got to hit me over the, the head if you want me to understand something so subtlety is <laughs> just not going to work you know so the energy stuff doesn't really work with me there's no sense me working with energy mm-hmm. um so i'm a pretty practically minded person that being said i have seen persons on the evidence-based side of things who um, are so rigid in where they are thinking that I'm, I don't want to necessarily align myself 100% up with them. Right. But I mean, I mean, I have an evidence-based practice. I believe in evidence-based practice, but even evidence-based practice is, you know, is basically considered the three-tiered stool where you are using your own, um, experience and the clients coming into play as well as evidence. So I think the evidence-based approach has enough flexibility in it that, mm-hmm. that, 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 that it allows for, adjusting client to client and some of the softer things as well. I do know right from my very early days of sort of trying to understand the world and nail things down is that logic is a phenomenal tool. Science is an amazing tool, but intuition is also an amazing tool because like if you use the science-based method to get from A to B, it takes you a long, long, long time there because you have to exclude every other pathway that will get you from right. A to B, right? Intuition can get you to B really quickly, but B not B, science can verify eventually that B is you know, is is a valid or a non-valid location to arrive mm-hmm. at. Intuition will quickly get you there. So, uh, you know, I think, and as a therapist, when I talk about your head, your heart, and your hands, once again, the head is the knowledge, but the heart is the empathy and the intuition. So mm-hmm. I think both things are important. So I haven't yeah. answered your question. <laughs> no, I th- well, no, I think you did answer my question because I, I'm with you there where I I definitely believe that science has – and evidence has to play a major role in what I'm doing. You know, I'm not just getting someone on the table and rubbing oil on them basically. Yeah. You know, what I'm doing, I'm doing with intent based on evidence. Um, but intuition I think is huge. I think you said that perfectly. I think you have to – trust your gut a lot of the time when you're a therapist because even when you're collecting like subjective and objective information sometimes you're going to get results that don't exactly match up that don't exactly make sense that you know you it might be difficult to form a clinical impression if you're just going on objective data unless I guess you've got you know tens of thousands of dollars worth of equipment that's measuring things better than we can do but otherwise I think a big part of it is when you're speaking to the person and understanding them so let's even take you know um, the person who's a victim Okay. We know intuitively, even when somebody is the person who's always the victim, you know that those people don't feel like they have any control over anything. Just being able to possibly bring them out of that idea that they've got no control over anything, you might start to see some positive results. And yes, that's not necessarily based on the science, but it was just your intuition of how to deal with this person's psyche, you know, and stop being a victim. We can work on this. We can see some improvements. I know that with my clients, I very often say to them, um, when they've come back and I ask all my questions to follow up and see where they are, let's say it was something to do with a range of motion. And they, you know, I have one client who were working on his rotation in his cervical spine and we'll do a range of motion test before and after treatment. And then the next time he comes in, we do it again. Maybe the improvement is this big, by the way, nobody can see me. So I'm, yeah, you know, yeah. about an inch <laughs> if that. So maybe the improvement is only a few degrees. Yeah. But I make sure to reinforce that with the person that, well, any movement in the right direction 
is an improvement. Yeah. You know, what we're doing is working. Yeah. It may take a little bit longer, but what we're doing is working. And and uh, there's one of the, you know, there's of the many points that I raise, one of them is certainly this business of uh, helping them along their journey and giving them positive feedback. And that's something we need to do is like they think, oh, I haven't made any progress. And you pull the charge. So, well, hang on. Last week you had right. A and now you've got B. So this is, we are moving, we're moving in the right direction. You know, we're not mm-hmm. just going to suddenly get there. So yeah, you need to sometimes remind clients of their own progress. Mm-hmm. But the business which you're talking there, you know, for example, the, the softer stuff, which is the victim stuff, um, there is science behind that. There is, uh, you know, there's a whole field of study of narrative therapy. Um, so, I mean, it's not all woo-woo. There, there's, there's, there's good right. science, science behind that as well. Too. I guess what I said using your intuition is we may not necessarily have a person and be able to dissect their entire psyche and, you know, get all the science behind it, but you can understand a person, as you said, just by active listening. You can start to understand a little bit about what's going on with them. People, if they really trust you, are going to tell you everything about themselves. They're going to tell you about their entire life when they're on your table. So if you can actually hear that and try to get a picture of who they are outside of your clinic room and what else is going on and what's going on in their head, you know, are they somebody who's pretty happy-go-lucky? Are they somebody who has trust issues and are guarded? Like, you have to get that information, which I think as a therapist, most of the time, all you can go off of is your intuition and try to figure out who is this person and how can I help them psychologically to get on board with what we're doing so that they can see some improvement. Because if you don't believe you're going to get better, we know that you're not going to get better. Exactly. And uh, there's a lot of points you raised there, but one of the points that raised that we haven't discussed yet, and there are these, these things called placebo, this concept called placebo responders. There are people who respond better to placebos than, than Mm -hmm. other people. These people uh, have a uh, personality trait, which is termed acquiescence. They are more open to, ideas. Um, they're more open to trust. They, they trust more easily. Um, and these same people respond better to drugs as well as placebos. Um, the, the bad news for us as a therapist is that this means your problem clients are still your problem clients. Right. <laughs> the, the clients that, that we find the most difficult to motivate, to trust, to uh, open up to us, these are the people who are least susceptible to placebo effects. But the good news is, as I say, because I, I explore about 30 different uh, triggers, well, if you can't get there with A or B or C, you can try D or E or F. There's right. a bunch of other things, uh, techniques that we can try to try and uh, motivate and open people up and and, and, and get them to uh, respond. What was the word you just said for people who are… Uh, yeah, the, the term is acquiescence. Acquiescence. I think this, that describes me. I do. I think I'm like overly trusting. I think the placebo effect would work on me every time. The minute, like I said, the hypnobirthing, I didn't actually take a, I wanted to take a class and I just ran out of time. I tried to sign up for one. It was full. I tried to sign up for another one. It was full. So I just did my own reading to try to figure out the concept of hypnobirthing. And I got myself to a point where I was like, yeah, yeah, I can do this. So in the delivery room, I was just doing what I had read. But I think that confidence and like, I've read enough made me believe that I was doing something because somehow that labor, which was way longer than my second one was easier because yeah. I was doing that. And the wow. second time, yeah. I hadn't read, you know, it had been a few years, I hadn't read anything. And I just kind of went into it like everybody else does. And about halfway through, I was like, no, I'm pretty certain this baby's going to have to live in here forever. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I think I actually said that. No, I'm done. We're, let's go home now. I'm over this. Another aspect of, uh, of belief systems and expectations we need to be aware of as a therapist is that we have our own belief system. And so if, if, you know, the classic case might be, for example, you know, motor vehicle accident clients, or if you've got a client who you feel like, oh, this is really difficult, and I'm not sure, you know, that we're going to see any progress here. You need to be aware that your own belief systems affect outcomes. And this is the whole reason that drugs were double-blind in the very first place, because they realized that when people were handing out pills, if they knew it was a placebo or they knew it was an active drug, they were having, without saying anything, they were having an effect on the outcomes. Right. So we need to be aware that we have an effect on their outcome. So if we're harboring negative thoughts, and this is where I guess this field gets a little bit softer, but if we're harboring uh, negative ideas, we don't think that this person is going to see improvement or what kind of messages, body language and other messaging mm-hmm. do we think we're doing with our clients. So we need to also examine our own belief system. I agree. And to add a little more woo-woo to that, turn off your ears if you are completely science-based, but you are touching people. And I actually do believe there is some seriously strong energy transfer when you have your hands on people. And if you're just crusty that day, if you have this negative attitude, if you don't like the person that you're working with, then yeah, I think that message is very very clear to the person that's on the table. And in that respect, I mean, our our profession is extremely challenging in that respect because every one of us, I am sure, has had clients we really don't like. Yes. And that it presents a real challenge for you personally and professionally to be your absolute best because you're not going to be your best, but you're going to try to be your best. But to what any degree that you are not your best, you are not, you know, you're not giving them their money's worth. I agree 100%. I have a client and it's not that I dislike him. He's actually a very nice person. You dislike him. No, I (laughs) I dislike my thoughts about what I think he thinks of me. Did that, did you follow that? I don't know whether or not he likes or dislikes me, but he's a very stoic kind of guy. I can't read him at all. And he's probably the only client I have where I get nothing. I have no idea. He continues to come back. He continues to rebook appointments. He must not hate me, but I always get this feeling that he doesn't really like me. And I don't know why, but that, that affects me somehow because I am not late for work. Majority of the time, somehow every time this guy is my first appointment of the day, Something happens that morning and I am late for work. So now on top of the fact that I already thought he didn't like me, I'm like, well, now he freaking hates me. I'm always late when it's his his appointment time. So yeah, I think my own negative ideas of this guy that may actually not dislike me at all. Don't get caught up in that loop. That's my only, that's my comment there. So be careful the loop you're creating for yourself. Yeah. Well, I am, I am aware of it. So now it's just trying to get out of it because I did start (laughs) to notice why is it only when you're my first appointment that I'm late? It's interesting. <laughs> and no, I don't hate him. <laughs> I, I, I don't even know what you're talking about, so. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And what do you think of all this stuff, Mark? Do you think it just is a bunch of nonsense? or do what, I how, think it's, How's do, it hitting you? Do I think it's a bunch of nonsense? Absolutely not. I come from a little bit more of a sport background, a sport world. And the idea of suggestion in sport world is huge, right? I grow my beard yep. because uh, we're winning. I'm yep. not, not going to shave, right? So, yep. I mean, I that's why I kind of wanted to get the idea about with, with how you feel about the woo stuff and uh, and evidence-based practitioners because this is all based in science yep. and hardcore evidence 
practitioners, they everything's based in science, but they're very quick to throw out stuff like cranial sacral, stuff like reflexology, stuff like Reiki. Mm-hmm. And it, to me, it's just kind of this weird thing. You're accepting of this, this placebo science stuff, but you're not accepting of this and the potential outcomes that can have with patients or clients. I kind of want to see what you had to say about that. My biggest complaint with uh, some of the the things I see written and the attitudes um, from the hardcore people, evidence-based people, is that they constantly go for soft targets. Um, when I say soft targets, I mean, you know, whether it's Reiki or or homeopathy or whatever. Like, personally, I don't think these things are doing anything at all, but I also don't think they're doing harm. Right. Um, so, like, I think everything that we do in life, we need to look at the risk-benefit ratio. What's the risk-benefit? Yeah. That's why I have so much respect for Ian Harris, who wrote a book. Uh, his came out, came out maybe a year and a half, two years ago, and it's called Surgery, the Ultimate Placebo. He looks really hard at surgery the, the, and the placebo effect of surgery mm-hmm. because there the risk is massive. People are dying from surgery. Right. Nobody's dying from homeopathy. Mm-hmm. They're, they're dying maybe because they didn't get some other treatment instead because they believe in homeopathy right, too, right. too much. But nobody's dying from homeopathy. Nobody's dying from Reiki. These are not hard targets. But I think that um, they are targets because they're within the manual therapy or they're within our profession. And they feel like, you know, we're going to go after them. So I think it's like, you know what, guys, go after the big guns. Don't go after these tiny little soft targets. That's the that's my only issue with the evidence-based people going hard at these, these targets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We did have someone raise a point that these soft targets, as you call them, though, are making making claims that he said or he felt are dangerous because if you are getting people to believe that you're doing something that you're not, they may ignore the treatment that they need. Yeah. And, and I support that. Absolutely. Like I think that, you know, I think that if in, in a world, just like we were going to allow cigarettes and we're going to allow gambling or whatever, so we should allow these things, but there needs to be a caveat say there is no evidence behind this. This, as far as we know, is 100% placebo effect. Um, and if people then want to get homeopathy, and then want to get to Reiki or like whatever it's like knock yourselves out. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to even ask any more questions because I think that you you actually covered it from start to finish of all of the points and I do agree with everything. As I said, I think a lot of this I've already been using in my practice without necessarily saying, well, I'm going to use techniques and triggers that are going to elicit a placebo effect. I wasn't doing it that way, but to me, it made sense in my whole treatment plan process is, okay, like this is a different person than this person. So sure, I might be doing very similar manual techniques on two different clients, but the treatments are different. And that, I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of things that got me, you know, when you, when I get asked that question, you know, how'd you get interested in this? There's like, I got like probably like 10 or eight different answers for it. I don't really know what to say at times, but one of the things that interested me was the fact that people could have a specific type of tendonitis and they could go to, they might get, uh, you know, uh, really deep work from someone. Mm-hmm. They might get uh, someone else. They might get friction techniques. Someone else they'll go and they'll do electrostimulation, and someone else will do a really subtle therapy. And everyone can say, well, someone got better when they got this done, right? Right. And likewise, you've had clients come in. You have client, and they come in with a with with a, you know lateral epicondylitis, and you do your thing, and it doesn't work. And another person is like two weeks after two treatments, boom, they're better. Right. So like, why is it there's this tremendous variety variation in response to things? 
things. And that's another thing that got me very interested in the placebo effect to realize that, you know, once again, now we know it's the, part of it is the psychosocial component. Part of it is bi- uh, biological variability. But um, that's another thing that got me very interested in the placebo effect. How is it some people are just wailing as someone really deep and getting a good response and other people are just barely touching them and getting a good response? There had to be more going on. And that's another thing that got me very interested in the in the placebo effect. Right. But as I said, after, after all said and done, we've covered the topic. If somebody says, well, I don't want to use that word placebo anymore, I'd say don't, just because there's lots of other good words to describe. Call it what you want it. Exactly. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's, as you said, the reason there's so many different practitioners who do things so drastically different, you know, now you have massage therapists who don't even really massage anymore. I mean, mm-hmm. massage yeah. in its traditional traditional sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've got physiotherapy, you've got chiropractors, you've got people who practice homeopathy or Reiki or reflexology or shiatsu or Thai massage. There's all of these different modalities and you'll have people who swear by, you know, their chiropractic treatments. And even within chiropractic, there's so many different types of chiropractors, ones who strictly do ART and exercise therapy. Then there's ones who are absolutely subluxation type of chiropractors where you're in and out in five minutes. Then, you know, you've got the ones who have you on, you know, three year long treatment plans and whatever person is coming to you, if they, again, we're going right back to where we started, if they trust you and they believe in what you do and they think this is the right treatment path for me, then they're probably going to see positive results. Whereas another person with a very similar issue, so we'll take your tendonitis issue, can go see a physiotherapist or someone who does acupuncture and say, acupuncture fixed my epicondylitis. Well, Cairo fixed my epicondylitis. Cool. You're both better. Yep. I have a quote that sort of fits in with that concept there. It's by Jerome D. Frank, who's not with us any longer, but he wrote a book quite a while ago. It was called Persuasion and Healing. And um, it was more, he was a psychologist, so he was dealing with psychotherapy and whatnot, but it's the the concepts are all the same in terms of uh, the effect of persuasion and healing. And he was sort of one of the earlier writers on the placebo effect. And he said, it's my position that technique is not irrelevant to outcome. Rather, I maintain that success of all techniques depends on the patient's sense of alliance with an actual or symbolic healer. So it has to do with that alliance and that trust that's been formed. Mm -hmm. And it turns out you could be pulling out an ultrasound machine or you could do like whatever. At some point when there's enough trust in you or the technique or in whatever, um, then you're off and, off and running. So that's a part of what's going on with the placebo effect is this this therapeutic alliance. Mm-hmm. Totally. I, I constantly say in uh, one of the courses I teach, whether you think you can or you think you can't, either way you're right. So yeah. it, a lot of it is going to have to do with what you expect the outcomes to be, how much faith you have in that modality or that therapist, and if you don't think it's going to work, very likely it's not. So you might as well go find another form of treatment that aligns better with your belief system. Yeah, yeah. Of all of the medical, paramedical, complementary alternative practitioners that you do have speaking engagements with and everything else, who listens to this more? I think they all listen to it. It's just, it's the same thing as, you know, they say, know your audience. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm... Like in another month or two, I'm going out to Alberta to speak at the Natural Health Care Practitioners of Canada. That's a softer group to speak of. I can talk about energy or if I want to, I can talk about things like that. And they are totally fine with that, right? But yeah, have I been asked to speak in front of a physiotherapist? No. Exactly. So that's that's kind of where I was going with it. Maybe they're just really focused on the manual aspect. Physios, maybe how they're taught. I mean, I didn't go to physiotherapy school. I I kind of feel like that. Yeah, maybe how they're taught is that 
what they're doing does have a huge effect on the person's body Mm -hmm. versus massage therapists, at least I can speak about us because I follow massage therapists on social media. seems a lot of massage therapists are coming to realize that our manual effects are not as big as we thought, or we're not doing what we thought we were doing. So the psychosocial aspect becomes much more important for us. Whereas a physio, I don't think the majority of them that come out of physio school second guess what they're doing either through their modalities or manually or whatever the case is. Like, I don't know about you guys. When you got out of school, did you have any, did you feel like you knew what you're doing? I did. Yeah, good for you. But a big part of it was I was way into this field before I went to massage school, right? So I had a kin degree. I was working in clinics. I was doing a lot of exercise therapy. I had a lot of exposure to it. And I just felt like, hey, this is just something else I'm going to do along the way to add into what I'm already doing. So I I think I, I was lucky that way. Good. Yeah. I, I mean, I would say definitely starting out, I had clients who made believers out of me because I was seeing response. Like, I, I wasn't certain that I, mm-hmm. where I sat on the whole thing. And and 20 years in, I would still say that, you know, like what I know is maybe like 1%, you know, like I feel like 99%, I still yeah. don't know. I, 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 I'd I be the first to admit that I'm, I feel like I'm in over my head in this <laughs> profession um, and have been right from day one. But uh, that being said, I still, you know, we, we still have ex- success stories and clients who keep coming back. Right. So must be doing something right. Mm-hmm. You don't come across that way. You have that confidence that you spoke about. You don't come across as somebody who doesn't think they know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, I recall, you know, many years ago, my wife and I were out in uh, in a a float in Georgian Bay and I've got a Hobie cat and uh, suddenly like a storm came out of nowhere and like a boom like I was just crapping my pants <laughs> and uh, but when I get when we got back to shore you know she had no idea that I was even remotely as scared as I was but like I was the captain it's like you know you, you can't you can't <laughs> you can't let that fear you know spread but yeah like I had no it's not that I had no idea what I was doing but I was scared shitless yeah mm-hmm. I feel like you could relate to this so well. well a little bit yeah I recall a time us driving through somewhere in the states and it was dark it was foggy we had a two-year-old in the back seat and I was scared out of my mind and I was looking at him and I'm like can you see I see nothing like it was like these winding roads like I I don't know maybe I'm being overly dramatic (laughs) but I was terrified I'm like I foresee us like falling off a cliff and like falling into a body of water I was so scared and I had no idea where we were it's not like I you know I know the states that well and he just seemed so totally fine and so confident and it wasn't until we were out of the fog and out of the horrible weather and whatever that I said to him like holy crap I would have been so scared if I were you. He's like, oh yeah, I was terrified. I'm like, what? <laughs> and it's the same thing. If it was you and your kids, then you would have just, you would have been the cool one, right? Because yeah. like, you know, you would have been calming them down. All those maternal instincts would have yeah. kicked right in and uh, they would have been none the wiser. When you're the captain, you've got to play the part. <laughs> <laughs> so the seven years that it takes you to put this bad boy together, every year you're in Mexico writing a little bit. Yeah. Does your practice change from year to year to year to year? Um, honestly, not a lot. I mean, I, I have had I had one interesting uh, comment after the book got published, and uh, my client said, "Are you using those placebo <laughs> techniques on me?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, as a matter of fact, I have because she had experienced breast cancer, and um, and breast cancer is well outside of our field as massage therapists, but our clients 
are coming to us and they're dealing with these types of problems. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, for that one, for example, you know, do you recall that like I gave you lots of um, evidence-based stuff on what you can and cannot do? And she was a she was a model cancer survivor and is a model cancer survivor because she learned everything that she could do diet-wise and lifestyle-wise. And I encouraged her. I was like I was like on her team, and and I gave her stuff. And every time that she she learned something, she would apply it. And you know and. I, so I was one piece in the puzzle in in helping her in her recovery. So, I, but some of that was all just like placebo effect. Like I was giving you the information, I was I was helping to give you the knowledge, and I was on your team, and I was saying you could do it mm-hmm. and supporting you. So yeah, the, that's placebo effect, but that's all good. So then she sort of realized, okay, yeah, it's not such a bad thing. But the word has negative connotations. It does. Yeah. It right? does because it sounds like you know we're not actually doing anything. We're just making you believe we're doing something. Yeah. yeah. But the reality is we're doing a lot for you and you know without sounding too woo woo we're allowing your body to heal from the inside out versus you know what we're doing externally having a very small effect yeah. I, I couldn't get my sentence out because I can hear you giggling <laughs> beside me I'm laughing <laughs> what are you laughing at I'm laughing because it's it's like the the puppet master right <laughs> and the last time we did a podcast with with a fellow yeah a, a nice gentleman at the end of it he turns to me and says you don't say much do you you're kind of a quiet guy it's kind of weird and the whole time I was thinking Actually, you're flapping your mouth like this because I asked one question and played puppet master. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. watched you just go grandstand on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, just it gave me a flashback. I chuckled. Oh, I don't want to be a puppet. <laughs> well, I'm sure you get some some people, and I'm sure you're really pleased if you can just sort of wind them up and let them go. It makes your job very easy. Yeah, I, uh, it, it I'm a big fan of the Ritual podcast, and I've I've seen uh, listened to two versions where he's. Uh, interviewed Ray Cronice and I don't know if you know anything about Ray Cronice but he's just he's just amazing and like you know you whine you ask Ray a question and he just goes for about half an hour and it's never boring yeah. I mean it's just everything is incredibly fascinating incredibly interesting and like 20 minutes later he's connecting to something he said five minutes later and seven <laughs> minutes later his mind is like the supercomputer and you think wow this is just unbelievable it is pretty awesome just to sit back and let people talk. Because as I said at the beginning, the guests we have on, you're the experts. We don't know anything. Yeah. We drove all the way here yeah. because we want to hear what you have to say. Yeah. I'm not really an expert. I'm a fraud, as I said. You know, like I I, I feel like a fraud. <laughs> you are a placebo. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. No. Speaking uh, <laughs> of the book, maybe this would yes. be a good time to let everybody know maybe how they can get in contact with you if they want to or where to find the book. Or... Good question. Um, the book itself, which you've... Uh, said the title is placebo effect in manual therapy is available on amazon so you can go on amazon you can buy yourself a physical hard copy for less than what you charge for a one-hour treatment so it's like less than a treatment would get you this all this knowledge um, or you can get the ebook if you're like me and your your bookshelf is getting kind of full. Then uh, I think it's about maybe uh, two thirds of the price of the, of the book. So you can get it in the e version as well. Um, my website is FultonMassageTherapy.com, and I have a small portion of that uh, website devoted to practitioners. So if you click under practitioners, you will see things there uh, that I have some articles have written on the placebo effect. I don't have a lot of active speaking engagements, and I'm not actively teaching on the subject, but I am always available if anyone ever wants me to speak or or converse, I'm available. Awesome. Thank you. Mm-hmm. How come you're not actively speaking on this stuff? I don't know. I'm just not motivated. I, 
something to do with being 65. (laughs) (laughs) Because he doesn't have to. (laughs) Like, yeah, like when someone says yes, I say yes, but I'm not all, not necessarily out there knocking on doors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I get it. Anything else you guys want to wrap on that? I feel like I got all the information I came here for, but if there's anything else that you want to talk about, Brian? Nope, that's fine. I think we've covered it. It is, it is a massive subject. And I know that any one of, you know, when I raise those 30 odd different points, any one of them honestly is worth the, worth a one hour discussion. There's, Mm -hmm. they're all pretty interesting and fascinating. Um, but uh, as I say, I have done some, uh, I'm not speaking, as far as I know, I'm not speaking at Canadian Massage Conference this fall, but I have been there the last two falls and I've, I've given like a, a three-hour seminar on it. And I'm, we're able to, in three hours to get into a pretty reasonable depth on things. When I used to teach, I went to maybe like student day and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. I'm there this year presenting. I have no idea what it's going to be like. Yep. Give me, give me a little, give me a little. What's your topic? Um, we're doing business stuff. We're doing like, uh, like uh, building your brand and things okay. like that. Okay. Yep. Um, the, the conference is well attended. I mean, uh, I think they do. Uh, what they do is smart. They keep the price point extremely low, and it's a bare bones kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's good. You're getting your name out there, and uh, I think what they're doing is fantastic. So uh, it'll be, you know, it'll be well attended. Right um, okay. the, the challenge you run into with therapists is sometimes if you get a hot topic, then everybody wants to be there. But like people are generally seem to be way more interested in technique than they are in the soft. You yeah. Know, if we call this the softer stuff. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a harder sell sometimes to get them to go to the, the softer, softer things. Gotcha. Gotcha. Right on. <laughs> Stop it. Puppet master. Wrap it up. <laughs> I'm kidding. Cool. Cool. Right on. So thanks for having us out here. Enjoy the drive, the, the way drive to St. Catharines. I dig it here, man. You know, are you familiar with the band Rush? Yeah. You ever go to Lakeside Park? Yep. Willows in the Breeze? Yep. <laughs> did, we, did we go there? We went there. The first time I went out there, it was actually, I have a buddy of mine from Toronto. He's a lawyer. And uh, we're big Rush fans. We're like, let's go find Lakeside Park and let's go see if there's actually a merry-go-round and yeah. blah, 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 blah. And pleasantly, we were very surprised. It was, it was a nice it was a nice deal. And then we played Rush the whole time. <laughs> Yeah, a good friend of mine went to school with Neil, and oh, yeah? uh, and the band manager uh, a few few residences ago. Band manager used to live right across the street from us. Right on. Well, now now I'm I'm happy to rap on that. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have been listening to two massage therapists in a microphone. Peace.